Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and indigenous radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan coming to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... The special education unit wasn't really that good at all. It was busy work at best. It was less high school education, more less than primary school education. It was, what's six plus six? We found out the journey of a First Nations man with autism who's studying to become a regional pharmacist. We have all the details. Also, a new study revealed 3% of adults may have ADHD. And later today... Queensland's law specifically stated that religious purposes were not reasonable purposes for the purpose of carrying a knife in a school. The Queensland Supreme Court overturned a decision about banning knives in a school. Who was affected by the ban? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're now across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the housing crisis is an ongoing issue for Australian families with house prices still rising. A new tool created by Swinburne University of Technology is allowing policymakers and shareholders to understand how critical social and affordable housing in Australia is, giving economic benefits for the community. The Community Housing Industry Association believes the tool is innovating, and I asked CEO Wendy Wayhurst to explain more about the tool called Sigma. Well, what we're trying to do is to convince government that spending money on social and affordable housing is a good thing, that um, it isn't just money frittered away, but you get a return on that investment, not just the housing asset itself, but also that when people move into stable, secure, affordable homes, they generally do better. If you like, their children do better at school. They generally have much better mental health. So they're using less public services. So there are savings in other parts of government. And also they take that example about children. Children tend to do better and in later life, they're more likely to hold down a good job. On top of that, there's lots of cost of living relief as well that comes to lower-income families. And we know that those lower-income families are doing it tough, spending um, less than they really need to have a decent life. And what are the numbers? What did the Sigma calculator find about social housing? So what we did was we took the federal government's current initiatives. Altogether, that's around about 40,000 social and affordable homes. And we ran it through the tool. We made a prediction about who would get those houses. And from those 40,000 homes over the next 40 years, there'd be an additional 4.4 billion that would be generated. And then on top of that, there's also a very big figure, 16.2 billion, uh, in terms of that cost of living relief to the people that go into those homes as well. So they're big numbers. And it, it doesn't surprise us. We always say this is great. If you provide people stable, affordable accommodation, there are going to be benefits. But now we can prove it. We're not just saying it. We've got, we've, we've got the evidence here. Now, in which way will this calculator help shaping more affordable housing and their benefits? 
to say what we want people to do, because the tool's going to be available online. And by the way, I should say it's peer-reviewed. You know, it's not something we've just dreamt up for our own purposes. We've had academics go into the research that underpins it just to make sure it's all kosher. What will happen is it will be downloadable. And what we want people to do is if um, our organisations, community housing, are putting in a bid for developing homes, they'll fill out this tool. They'll use this tool so that government knows what the benefits are. We're also hoping government will themselves start to use it. So, you know, if we're building roads, if we're putting in rail lines, we have to do a cost-benefit analysis. We have to demonstrate there's value coming out the other end. And this is what this tool allows governments to do and allows us to prove to government that what we're doing is good. Could you please expand a little bit more about the saving costs in the future? I, I think I read that it says that uh, yeah. there will be like $16 billion in savings for cost of living, yeah. etc. Could you please expand on that? So what we've done is we've looked at what people pay when they rent on the, in, from the private sector. So we looked at market rents. Um, and uh, what we've done is we've calculated the savings of someone who's in social and affordable housing. So, you know, there's a bit of complexity around it because there's different rents in different places. And in social housing, you pay less rent than you do in affordable. So we've taken all of that and uh, we've looked at the difference between what people will pay in the private rental sector and what they'll pay if they're renting um, our homes. On top of that, we're also assuming, because let's face it, we don't want to build rubbish. We want to build good standard homes, that these homes will be energy efficient. So people's energy bills will also be lower. So we've totted all of that up, and that's where that figure comes. So we're talking an individual around about $10,000 a year that they would save if they were in social and affordable housing. And finally, the calculator also provides information about the environmental benefits on green spaces and dwelling designs. It's not only about housing itself. Why is this important to consider for affordable housing? Well, we want to build great housing in great places. And so people always say to us, well, you know, if you build near a park or you give people a balcony or you put a load of trees in, it's going to cost more. So we wanted to show people what happens, what the additional benefits are if we do those things. If we give people a balcony, if we locate our housing near where they can go out and their children can run around freely in the park or whatever we those trees in. So there are benefits which come from additional well-being. So we've done original research to look at that, a massive survey. But there are also things like tree cover, carbon dioxide out of the air as well. So there's that climate benefit that comes from it. That was CEO of the Community Housing Industry Association, Wendy Wayhurst. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Programme. Last week, the Disability Royal Commission released a report about the NDIS and the challenges Australians with disabilities face when accessing the system. But there are men and women with disabilities who are achieving great outcomes despite the challenges of accessing education. Bachelor of Pharmacy student at Charles Sturt University and Gondonora man Jesse Daniel says his journey to tertiary education wasn't easy after being, diagno after being diagnosed with autism as a young child. 
National Radio News reporter Remy Norton asked Jesse Daniel what motivated him to study pharmacy. In my hometown, there's just one pharmacist. He earns, I think he co-earns slash earns another pharmacy about an hour away or 30 minutes. I'm bad with time and distance. <laughs> Family lives there, so I just kind of went, hey, pharmacy, and I could maybe become the pharmacist in Candos. And it would also reduce the burden on him and I could help my local community. That's really incredible. And you say your journey through the education system wasn't easy. Can you tell us a bit about your experience at school? Well, I basically missed all of primary school. I was sick a lot and I basically just got sent into special education. In high school, I was in special education until year eight, if I remember right, or nine. No, year nine, I was fully reintegrated into mainstream education. The special education unit wasn't really that good at all. It was busy work at best. It was less high school education, more pri less than primary school education. It was, what's six plus six? How do you spell apple? That sort of thing. And as a teenager, that just infuriated me. So I just kept complaining and complaining and complaining until I was sent back into mainstream education. Interesting. And how would you say that limited experience then, I suppose, limited you in your study? How did you work through that to do the course that you're doing today? Well, I believe it, how do I put it? It made me learn faster, like learn how to learn faster. With mathematics specifically, I didn't even know we were meant to finish the chapter at home if we didn't finish it in class. So I basically got a 20% on our first exam in math. Oh, well, my first mainstream education math exam. I was confused because I thought what we were taught in class was all we needed to know. And if we didn't finish it, it didn't matter. So I basically picked up that, hey, I got to learn fast and I got to just either A, pick up the slack or B, give up. And I decided to pick up the slack. <laughs> That's really great to hear. So once you made it into university, were you studying pharmacy straight away or did you start in another course? I started in health and medical science and after the first year I transferred into pharmacy. Okay, fabulous. And what support did you have to make the decision to start pharmacy? Not much, honestly. No, I had a friend that was in pharmacy and, well, he, he just helped me through, not helped me through my subjects, he helped me learn how to study better, and I just caught on, I guess. Um, how important to you is that you can study pharmacy in a regional area? Well, pretty important. Personally, I do not like cities, so it's really nice to at least have a tiny bit of nature near me. Definitely. Um, do you think pharmacists in the region face specific challenges, and if so, what challenges do you think they face? Oh, they face many challenges, like um, there's very few GPs, and those GPs have a lot of patients they have to deal with, and sometimes they may accidentally prescribe the wrong dosage, and then they have to call them, and then sometimes the GPs don't have the time to pick up their calls, and it's a lot of stress. Definitely, and how are you finding the course? How's it going? I believe I'm doing fine, and it's not easy, but it's not impossible either. I, I say it's the perfect level of difficulty. That's great. And what's your advice to people who face similar challenges in the education system? What would you like to tell them? 
Um, ATOM means nothing, just go into a bridging degree. <laughs> and while they're in high school and they are facing the same academic challenges that you had experienced, what, what advice would you give them? You are truly the only person that can make you do this. Do not rely, uh, you can rely on others, but ultimately it's up to you to force yourself out of bed, out of whatever dark place and whatever limitation you put upon yourself to actually study it and know it and persevere. That was pharmacy student at Charles Sturt University, Jesse Daniel, ending the story by National Radio News, Remy Norton. Listening to the WIA, Independent Current Affairs and Community, and Indigenous Radio. I'm Eduardo Jordan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on H Radio, and to the other side of the country to Radio Gulari in Broome, Western Australia. Research by Curtin University found new data on adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. The research analyzed more than 50 international studies and revealed 3% of the adult population are affected by ADHD, but 9 out of 10 adults are not receiving the treatments they need. The Wires contributor from RTRFM Fiona Bartholomew asked lead author from the Curtin School of Population Health Dr. Getine Yeya what led him to start this research? The main thing that led us to do is the disorder has got a lot of attention in children and adolescents, but it has got a low attention and the distribution is not well known in adults. Uh, the vast majority of them were, were not getting treatment, so, so we went to show the distribution and the prevalence in adults so that the disorder will get the required attention. So when you were looking through all of these studies, what in particular were you looking for? Uh, we used the uh, umbrella review methodology to look at the published evidence, data from published studies that investigated the prevalence of ADHD in adults across the globe. So we reviewed the existing reviews and we found around five meta-analytic systematic review and from these 57 primary studies were selected and the finding was based on that one and we used advanced methodology to analyze uh, the data. That's, uh, that's the method. And it was found that 3% of the global adult population or approximately 180 million adults are affected by ADHD. Can you tell us a bit more about this finding? Yeah, the finding is very, uh, uh, relatively, shows, the finding shows a relatively high prevalence of ADHD in adults, around, yeah, 3%, or as you said, uh, uh, 180 million adult population, which is very high. Uh, when considering most of the, them are not getting diagnosed and not getting the treatment they require, so the prevalence is high. But there are a wide range of disorders even lower rates than this one, uh, ADHD, but they're getting attention. So this, the, pre- the study indicates, uh, suggests the disorder need to get attention. 
the, the those who have the disorder also need to have adequate treatment. And like I said earlier, and you said as well, it found that nine out of ten adults diagnosed with ADHD weren't receiving the treatment where they require. Why do you think that is that they haven't been receiving the treatment that such a large number of people who aren't receiving treatment? Uh, there are a wide range of contributing factors for that one uh, for not getting treatment. This including the, the disorder not getting the attention by the required bodies including the, the governments, the researchers, as well as the clinician as well. And the other reason is challenges with diagnosis. The symptoms are overlapping with so many other disorders, including anxiety and depression. So there is a lot of misdiagnosis. So they are getting the misdiagnosed, getting the wrong treatment. And the other one is uh, absence of specialized care for those uh, disorders. And the complexity of the symptoms as well are the common some of the key factors for leading the untreated and misdiagnosis. We know there are a fair amount of adults who are being diagnosed with ADHD later in life. Why do you think it's not being found or realised earlier? You mentioned briefly there that there's a bit of misdiagnosis, but what are the reasons why it's not being caught earlier? Yeah, as I mentioned before, the the first one is that the disorder is not getting less attention in adults, but the definition indicates that most of the symptoms, uh, at least some of the symptoms, should be present before the age of 12, but the symptoms are very complex. So one of the, the, the those leading uh, not to get diagnosed either is uh, the complex symptoms, uh, which is similar with other disorders as well. Finally, what's next for this research? So the, our objective is to, to show the distribution, the prevalence. So we already showed that. And the next step will be how developing any strategies, informing the government how to really identify the disorders and possibly training of the application of training of the health professionals and other required bodies to, the, to be the disorder early diagnosed and how the best strategies and approach for prevention and treatment of ADHD in adults before it gets worse. So our, our next step will work on researching, advising the government on how to address these issues. That was Dr. Gettinet Yeya from Curtin University, ending the story by RTRFM's Fiona Bartholomew in Perth. The Wire, independent news and current affairs for the last 15 years and still going strong. The Queensland government is still considering their options after the Supreme Court of Queensland overturned a ban on knives in schools for religious reasons. The law in Queensland under the Weapons Act says it's prohibited to carry knives at a school without a reasonable excuse, and religion is included in this category, finding the law inconsistent with the Racial Discrimination Act. I started asking senior lecturer at the University of Western Australia, Dr. Renee Baca, why the case was in the court. 
So under almost every uh, state or territory's Weapons Act, there'll be a provision uh, banning the carrying of knives and other forms of weapons in public places and in schools, and Queensland was no different. Uh, They had a blanket ban on the carrying of knives or um, other weapons uh, in public places and including in schools. However, Queensland's laws were a little different. Most other states and territories then have generic exceptions and sometimes specific exceptions that allow the carrying of knives for reasonable purposes. Purposes. So cutting food or a scout wearing it as part of their uniform. It's quite, we use knives for all sorts of things, including in public places and at schools. But Queensland's law specifically stated that religious purposes were not reasonable purposes for the purpose of carrying a knife in a school. And the effect of this was that the only group in Australia that habitually carries a knife for religious purposes, uh, which they call the Kurapan, are Sikhs. And so the effect of the Queensland law was to ban people going to schools from carrying their kurpan uh, at schools, which is unique. No other state has such a specific prohibition on kurpans in schools, at least not in their legislation. So why was this decision overturned in the Queensland Supreme Court? So the Queensland Supreme Court uh, considered the ban uh, on the Kurapan specifically and they found that that particular provision was inconsistent with the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act. And so the Racial Discrimination Act prohibits, amongst other things, discrimination on the basis of a person's race and in this particular instance requires people of different ethnic origins and different racial groups to be treated and have access to the same rights as other ethnic groups and particularly the important part here was the access to the same rights. And the Queensland Supreme Court found that this particular law uh, meant that Sikh children and, and Sikh adults attending schools could exercise their freedom of religion, which is an important human right, less than other ethnic groups attending schools in Queensland. And so they found that the Queensland law under their Weapons Act was inconsistent with this particular provision under the Commonwealth Anti-Discrimination Act and under Australia's constitution. So why is a Kirpan very important for the Sikh community? So the Kirpan is one of five markers of faith for the Sikh community. And not all Sikhs carry a Kirpan. Uh, the Sikh community is obviously very diverse and has different people at different stages of their faith. But for those Sikhs that are initiated, so have fully uh, adopted and engaged in the religion, they wear five markers of faith. The one that most people will be familiar with is the turban that you will see initiated men who are members of the Sikh community, but also increasingly women uh, who are members of the Sikh community wearing they wear this turban, and most people recognise that. The kurpan, like the turban, is one of these markers of faith that an initiated Sikh is required to have on their person at all times. And if they are required to remove it, they may need to go through a process of absolution or forgiveness later down the track. So for them, it's a very uh, sacred duty to carry the kirpan along with the other four markers. How are other jurisdictions managing the use of kirpans in schools? So as I, as I said at the beginning, all states have generic bans on the carrying of knives. However, most states allow those to be carried uh, for either reasonable purposes, so a generic uh, exception, and usually religion is considered to be a reasonable purpose, or for specifically for religious purposes. So it's quite it's not uncommon or not unheard of for children to be carrying, or adults, uh, parents and teachers, to be carrying a kurapan in school. What we've seen happen both internationally, uh, Canada is a classic example of this, and here in Australia, is the Education Department put in place guidelines to make sure people are kept safe and no accidents happen, um, people aren't caused any 
distress, either because they can't have their curb pad or because they might um, interact with one by accident. So what they would tend to do is require that the curb pad uh, be worn under a person's clothing rather than over a person's clothing. And how do you think the Queensland Education Department will act about this decision? So far, the Queensland Education Department have so far come out and said that they're considering the decision and I've yet to see a formal public response other that they're considering it. But my uh, impression is that they'll go and have a look at what they're doing around Australia, what some of their options might be. But judgment left open the possibility, so the Queensland Supreme Court left open the possibility that a blanket ban on all knives, and that would include knives for food, uh, would might not breach the Racial Discrimination Act, but that wasn't considered specifically in the case. That was Senior Lecturer at the University of Western Australia, Dr. René Varka. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening wherever you're in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jagara countries where this program has been produced, and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past present and emerging. Today the Wire came to you from Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Eduardo Jordan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.